Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks, Dan, and welcome to Episode 20. In our last episode, I mentioned in passing that Jesus told the disciples that their failure to cast the demon out of the boy was because of a lack of faith and prayer. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. Well, today, I don't want to pass over this, but instead go a little deeper. I'm convinced that our Lord's answer has much more to offer than what first meets the eye. We are discussing communion with God. How do you have fellowship with the one true God? In the last podcast, we stated that prayer is one of the primary methods of practicing relationship with God, which is what communion is all about. It's practicing your relationship with Him. The 17th chapter of Matthew begins with our Lord Jesus taking three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up what is called the Mount of Transfiguration. It was there on the upper regions of that mountain that Jesus' appearance changed. The Bible says that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Not only that, but standing with him was Moses and Elijah discussing his approaching death and departure. If that was not enough to blow the disciples' minds, God the Father joined the glorious scene and spoke audibly, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Meanwhile, down in the valley, a significant ruckus was happening. A distressed and desperate dad found the remaining nine disciples and begged them to cast out the demon that was possessing his son. The devil was causing epileptic kind of seizures and often causing the boy to fall into both the fire and water. The Pharisees were compounding the situation, arguing with the disciples. Now, we don't know what the argument was about. All we know is that they saw an opportunity to create attention for themselves, and they took it. So when Jesus and the three other disciples come on to this commotion, the Lord asked, What's going on? The father spoke up and kneeled before Jesus, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Matthew chapter 17 Verses 15 and 16, Jesus rebukes the nine disciples, and then he casts the demon out of the boy. Later in private, the embarrassed disciples asked the Lord, Why could we not cast it out? It's this question that elicits this response from Christ in Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 20. So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. A few short weeks before this event, Jesus had sent out 
the disciples two by two, telling them to heal the sick and cast out demons. He gave them the power to do these miraculous things, and they did it. They returned after their very successful solo ministry and enthusiastically reported to the Lord all that they had done, including casting out demons. So, you can imagine on this day when the beleaguered father comes looking for Jesus, but instead all he can find are these nine men. The disappointment must have registered on his face and his body language communicated his sadness. But one of them speaks up. I don't know who, perhaps it was Matthew or Andrew, but someone said to the father, bring him to us. We'll pray for him. We did this a few weeks ago. This will be no problem. They prayed and then prayed some more, but nothing happened. They could not cast out the demon. They just knew they could do it, but in the end, they couldn't. The disciples must have been shocked, startled, and shaken, and for that reason, they asked Jesus the question, why could we not cast it out? In other words, they were saying, and therefore asking, we did this easily just a few short weeks ago. Why could we not cast out the demon today? They would have not asked this question if they knew the answer. The apostles have no idea why they couldn't do it, which only indicates they believed they could do it. And so Jesus answers, because of your unbelief. Now, modern translations has little faith instead of unbelief, but I think unbelief is the better word. I think it fits the context much better. Since Jesus said if they had little faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, uh, they could cast a mountain into the sea. So our Lord is contrasting no faith in God with small faith in him. And then our Lord Jesus adds verse 21. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, I know the word fasting's not in most newer translations, but that's beside the point. And it really makes no difference to what Jesus is teaching. So, what does Jesus mean? Is he saying the more prayer, the more power, the more prayer, the more success? Now, these are important questions, because depending on the answer, we will have a biblical Christianity that has a motivation of prayer that is unique, or we will have an improper motivation for prayer that will lead to an unbiblical Christianity. In other words, Jesus' answer provides us with the proper reason or purpose of all prayer. And let us not forget that prayer is a primary means of communion with God. Was Jesus simply saying the more prayer and fasting, the more success in ministry? Is he saying more prayer and fasting brings success in life, that it brings more answers to prayer? I've heard ministers sound forth from this text and say, if we would have more power with God, we've got to spend more time in prayer. Well, no doubt that's true, isn't it? Isn't that what Jesus says? He says to his failed disciples, you did not succeed for two reasons. The first reason is a lack of faith in God. And number two, the kind of demon that possessed the boy. Jesus pointed out that this kind of demon was stronger than any demon they had encountered 
on their ministry assignment a few weeks earlier. That's what he means by this kind. Now, here's my question. Did our Lord mean for us to increase our time in prayer? If we only increase our time in the prayer closet, then more power out of the prayer closet. Is that what our Lord is suggesting? That's the way the text is often preached. But I think it's entirely wrong. It's wrong-headed and even worse, wrong-hearted. That's not the way we should approach this text. And it's one of the problems that afflicts our prayer lives. Now, before I share the biblical motivation for prayer, I want to tell you what your motivation should not be. You should not pray for more power. More prayer does not equal more power because Jesus said such an approach is wrong. It is entirely pagan. And besides that, more power should not be the aim and purpose of prayer. That, too, is pagan and unbecoming to God. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns against the kind of motivation that says more prayer equals more power. If you look at this text, as it's often preached, I need more power in my life, so I need to increase my prayer time from 30 minutes to an hour or an hour to three hours, and that will guarantee me more power. Well, Jesus prohibits this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. He said Gentiles or pagans reduce faith to a formula. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. The more words, the greater the probability of being heard and received is how false religions and cults pray. Jesus said, do not pray with that kind of motivation. You're not to enter prayer thinking that you can formalize prayer, saying, if I pray for three hours, I will have greater power. It is praying with the same motivation as the pagan who thinks that the gods will hear and answer them because of their great sacrifice of time in prayer. You must not believe that you will see more prayers answered if you start praying for an hour a day. Now, why is that not the motivation? It seems that that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 17. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The more time in the secret place of prayer, the more power. But that cannot be his meaning because that would reduce prayer to a mere mechanical formula. It would contradict what he says in Matthew chapter 6. God can't be reduced to a formula. He's not a slot machine. Put in more prayers, yank the crank, and get a whole lot more answers. No. Prayer is not formalistic. But listen carefully. If you view prayer as part of a formula, you're saying two things about God. The first thing you are saying is, God is stingy. Therefore, prayer is a means to manipulate God. The reason for prayer becomes simply manipulation. The Lord has this thing you want in His hand, and prayer becomes the means of loosening His grip long enough for you to take it from Him. By insinuation, you're saying, God is not generous. You view prayer as overcoming reluctance in God's heart to give. You're saying, God's a miser. 
But if you do the time, then he'll give you what you're seeking. So again, it says God is stingy, and prayer becomes a means of overcoming God's reluctance to bless. But secondly, this surely cannot be what the Lord Jesus meant because it says that God is neither good nor gracious. It's to believe the ancient lie that Satan implied to our first parents in Eden. He implied to them, God is not good. Therefore, to overcome his lack of goodness, you've got to be good. You've got to prove your goodness by the execution of your religious and spiritual duties. And some of you have just that kind of relationship with God. You don't believe God is as good as he says he is in his word. Therefore, it's up to you to perform enough to get from God what you desire. Now, you would never say that, and you're probably not even aware that this motivation is working within you, but that's what it all comes down to. Beloved, God is very good. He does not just act good. He is good. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good and do good. The Lord is more gracious than you can even conceive. Now to him, who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Some of us have too much of a legal mind. We view God in this obligatory fashion. We feel like we've got to fulfill his rules of obligation before we can experience his goodness and grace. I don't want to be too harsh. But let me just simply say, that's demonic. You need to see it for what it really is. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's the enemy trying to suggest that God is not a person of integrity. So, that's not the reason or purpose of prayer or why we pray. Let me repeat, prayer is not a formula. Prayer is not overcoming reluctance in God. And we should never use prayer to suggest that God is not good or gracious. Now, let me give you another false or wrong motivation for prayer, and that is to pray because answers to prayer are the prize of prayer. In other words, the answer is more valuable to you than the God who gives the answer. The thing you desire in prayer becomes your ultimate goal. God is not your exceedingly great reward, but whatever the latest desire is. How many of your prayers fall under that category? You desire the gift more than the giver. Now, can you see why maybe some of your prayers are not being answered? Is it possible you can see why it is you don't enjoy prayer? Your mindset about prayer is unbiblical. Your mind needs renewal according to the scriptures. So, what is the primary motivation for prayer? Well, I would say, namely, it's two things, and both have to deal with faith. First, it's faith in the person of God. It's faith in God's surpassing excellency. I'm talking about genuinely believing that the Lord God is more valuable than anything you could ever ask of him. Your heart is convinced that he's enough to satisfy it. You trust that he's enough, and he's more than enough for every longing of your heart. And secondly, it is faith in the goodness of God, more specifically confidence in God's willingness to answer prayer. 
you truly believe that God is willing to answer your prayers regardless of how long you pray or how well you pray. Indeed, you have watched a small child ask something of a parent. They get right up in their lap and their face and stare intently into the parent's eyes and say, Daddy, please give me no embarrassment whatsoever. If I go to someone needing something, there's a sense of embarrassment. I'm embarrassed that I may be putting you in an awkward situation or that I'm going to inconvenience you, but, but not a little child. They don't think that way. They get right up into daddy's or mommy's face and say, please give me this, please. There's no embarrassment whatsoever. They're not considering what mom or dad is thinking about them. What fuels this kind of confidence? Well, it's simple. It's the fact that the child believes in the goodness of the parent. They've learned that mom and dad love them much and love being good to them. Well, surely you... You should believe the same about God who is your Father and trust in His goodness. Coming to God in prayer should be just like a little child. Coming to their Father believing He wants to be good to him or her. And no doubt when observing children, you've noticed that sometimes their requests can be quite unusual, if not outlandish. But never any shame for the asking. The first two stanzas of a John Newton hymn. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare, summarizes well what I'm trying to say to you. Here's how it reads. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare, Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, rise and ask without delay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. These two proper motivations for prayer can be restated. I think it will help us to do so. The first purpose, faith in the person of God and His surpassing excellency, is nothing more than a deep and overflowing love for God. The second purpose, faith in God's goodness and His willingness to answer prayer, translates into our deep and desperate need for God. We need God to intervene on our behalf. We are not sufficient. These are the only two motives for prayer. Yes, you heard me correctly. You can mention worship and thanksgiving as a motive, and indeed they are. However, they are a result of the fact that your heart flows toward God in love and that He has met you in your need and supplied out of His goodness. My friend, you can categorize and consign all prayer to these two grand purposes. Now, we're just going to have time today, and not even enough at that, to look at the first biblical motivation for prayer. Prayer is the practice of a love relationship with God. Let me say that again. Prayer is the practice of a love relationship with God. Prayer is first and foremost about love for God. Undoubtedly, prayer is the way we receive answers from Him, yes. It's God's appointed instrumentality by which we receive what we need, no doubt about that. There's no argument about it either. Petitioning God is appropriate. But prayer is more than just means to answers. It is intimacy with the person you love the most. That's the greatest reason for prayer. This is what I suggest to you is what our Lord is teaching us about prayer. It's all in that one statement. 
However, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. The highest purpose of prayer is fellowship with the God we love. Do you realize that you're, that you're always standing in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven? The Bible says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says, we're seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 2. The king of the universe opens up his arms and says to you and I, Come, the master calleth, come and dine. That's fellowship. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't understand it. I don't know why the Lord would want time with me. But understand it or not, that's what the Bible says. Your God loves you and he likes you. How do you know if somebody likes you? Well, they want to spend time with you. And isn't it amazing that the creator of the universe wants to spend time with us? Because of his great love, he enjoys being with you. Do you love him enough to be alone with him? Do you reciprocate the same? I'm telling you, that's the highest purpose of prayer. Having said that does not change the fact that sometimes prayer is difficult. It can be difficult because there are things or persons who oppose our praying, devil's schedules, and our own flesh. Mere duty and discipline will never overcome these obstacles. But the power of love can and does. Yes, discipline will work for a while, but eventually it will disappoint you. But love, the power of love, overcomes every one of the obstacles. I've told this illustration many times. When I entered my senior year of college, I had a very high grade point average. I was set to graduate with honors, and then I met my wife-to-be. I still graduated with a decent grade point average, but it wasn't with honors. Now, I'm a very disciplined person for the most part. I worked full-time going through college, and I went to school full-time. And because of my discipline, I was able to do all of that and still maintain a high grade point average. Discipline had gotten me through the first three years of college, and then I fell in love, and love overcame my discipline. There are times when our love for God is not as fervent as it once was or should be, and in those hopefully brief times, Discipline is necessary. We must play the man and gird up our loins and faithfully execute what we know we should do, especially when we feel it very little. But if this becomes long-term, now please listen, discipline will eventually fail you. And besides that, even if you can maintain the discipline and do what you're supposed to do, the Lord takes offense when we lose first love and work out of just sheer discipline. Love is to be the fuel of our discipline. My love for Karen motivated me to be with her regularly. I was disciplined in calling on her, conversing with her, communing with her. But discipline without love is cold formalism, and it does not bless our God. But love, oh, it overcomes every obstacle. When you really love God, you don't let obstacles hinder you. That's 
why we said earlier, a prayer problem is a love problem. You don't love God as much as you claim to love Him. And that, my friend, is the issue. The practicing of relationship must be at the heart of prayer. Otherwise, your prayers become ritualistic. You end up saying the same thing, the same request, the same words, all without any feeling. And you often get the same answer to prayer. Nothing. Nothing happens. No fellowship, no communion, and no answers to prayer. You've turned prayer into a mere form, and it's no longer the practice of relationship. A.W. Tozer, in his devotional classic, The Pursuit of God, said this, Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out, and when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long-seeking. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Did you hear that? Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. That's what we needed to hear, and that's what we must remember. Well, our time is almost gone, so let me summarize, and we'll pick up here next week. Jesus is not teaching us that if we simply discipline ourselves to pray more, we'll have more power and receive more answers to prayer. No, instead, he says, the key to having more and receiving more answers to prayer is not about how disciplined you are in the time in which you pray, but rather, power and answers to prayer are for those who love spending time with the Father in the secret place of prayer. Those who pray more are those who love more, and those who love more will have all they need to do the will of God. Well, may God help us. May the fire of God's love melt our indifferent and cold hearts. If you have any questions, send us an email to web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. And please include your name. We, we want to be able to give one special questioner a signed copy of my new book, The Fight of Faith. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in. And may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.